From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, welcome back to another episode of Wharton Moneyball. This one, a virtual episode. We are again recording via Zoom and from both Center City, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs, and Central Texas. Everybody's here. Cade Massey hosting with my colleagues, faculty colleagues, Eric Bradlow. Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Delighted to see you guys. How are you this afternoon? Excellent. How are you doing? Doing well. Good. For the record, Kate, I'm actually now in New Jersey, where my family is celebrating Passover, much closer to the epicenter of uh, COVID-19 uh, problems over here, and right. you can feel it. You were feeling too secure in the, the leafy suburbs of Philadelphia, had to move closer to the fire? Well, my wife is a rabbi, as some of you know, and uh, she's meaning to administer her to her congregation uh, much more locally. Uh, things are bad. She had few, four funerals in the last three days. Wow. wow. And, and they are going forward with funerals, Adi? Uh, she participated at the gravesite, one of three people um, allowed. The rest of the people were in cars. And uh, the, the funerals themselves are taking place virtually. Okay. Okay. Gracious. Um, yeah. And how did y'all do Seder last week? Was there, was there a virtual Seder with family? How did that go? Uh, uh, um, most of the people I know have done virtual Seders. Um, we had uh, our children with us, and we did not do it virtually. Um, we, don't, we are still traditional, not, and we don't use the electronics on the holiday. Um, okay. But it was, uh, you know, it was small, down from our 30-plus guests, yeah, right. down to just the, the five of us. Okay. And you said you feel it in, in, in uh, central northern Jersey. How, t- tell me a little bit about where things are in Philadelphia. P- Philadelphia is peaking a little bit later than New York, I gather. What do you guys, what do you guys, where are you guys keeping your finger on the pulse of this thing? In what way? And, and how can we kind of update on where things are? Well, I know that I'm, I'm aggressively looking at the numbers. Um, uh, they're slowing down everywhere. Nobody seems to be, you know, seeing a real dramatic turnaround. New York uh, has fewer people in the hospital than they did uh, a couple days ago. That's great. Really great. Pennsylvania, our locally, we're seeing fewer numbers every, every, uh, every day than the previous day. So that seems to be dropping. Um, whatever we're doing, I think, is working. Uh, but we're also starting to see, now that the, the time has elapsed, we're starting to see the deaths happening. And that's the, that's the, so yes, there's good news. I think the numbers of cases are, are, are dwindling, but we're also seeing the impact. And mm-hmm. I, when I say New Jersey, it's, it's just much more prevalent up here in North Jersey. And so there are many more people and, and they intersect with my life here. Uh, but the, we didn't see, I didn't really see it in Philly. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, kind of wa- walking around the city on the sort of like on my self-isolating walks that I do and stuff like that, it, it doesn't seem like, um, I mean, other than it obviously being a lot more sparse uh, public, you know, in terms of public use, um, I haven't really been kind of seeing an impact. And again, I think, you know, my my kind of local communities and networks of friends and stuff like that, I haven't, you know, cases haven't kind of been popping up as prevalently in that. I have a colleague who works at NYU and she is certainly, you know, you know, there's obviously a lot more cases up there that she's kind of personally impacted by. I mean, I've been tracking things like, you know, the IHME kind of forecasts on when we're supposed to peak and stuff like that. It does seem like if anything, the peak on, on a national level is coming sooner, much sooner than later. I mean, I mean, of course, you know, a a running theme of our, our show last time that we can again discuss today is that that, kind of looking at some kind of national peak really kind of ignores the very important heterogeneity between <laughs> different locations in the U.S., which I think is going to be a, a huge factor, you know, at this summer. Like, you know, like let's say, you know, New York is, has the worst peak in the U.S. and that kind of happens over the next couple of weeks. Is that going to then be something that drives just New York to kind of open up a little bit sooner than the rest of the nation again? Or will we I think- kind of- so we all kind of have gone through that peak. I think I've been looking at some of the numbers, but one thing that's really going to be difficult when it comes to addressing the issue of opening up, I was looking at California. California's a very big, big, big state. Something like 29 counties haven't seen a new case in a few days or a week. And think about the heterogeneity. There's going to be parts of this country, particularly the more rural, that haven't seen cases in weeks or more, and you're going to keep them from opening up? 
Um, yeah. Compared to say places more urban, you're where you see far more cases, uh, in, certainly in numbers, and, and the case can be made to keep that more under 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 isolation and quarantine. This is going to be the problem going forward. How do we open up, given the heterogeneity of the of the of the of the pandemic across the country? And Here's I don't know how to answer that. Yeah, here's another challenge I see. So we're obviously, this is a data show or an analytic show. And so you could imagine trying to look at, let's call it local level policies that have been taken. You could try to see how it affects the actual shape of the curve and try to come up with some conclusions about which policies tend to be working. But here's the challenge. I mean, this is the classic. I mean, you know, I'm not an economist by training, but I pretend to be a little bit. Um, And, you know, this is the classic endogeneity problem. Because what are each locale, what's each governor doing? She or he is setting policy because she has information that allows she or he to try to flatten the curve and minimize the number of deaths. So we're not seeing a randomized set of policies being applied. We're actually seeing an endogenously selected set of policies being uh, picked that unfortunately means, this is what I describe, is that, you know, you know, someone that Shane and I remember from graduate school quite well, Don Rubin, he would always say, when you can do randomization, you really, I mean, not that you don't need to be a statistician, but under randomization, randomization-based inference is a lot easier in certain cases. This is not a randomization-based inferences. Uh, different locales are not flipping coins and deciding, should I do this? Should I do that? They're doing it based on the information they have. Well, that's going to make causal learning a lot more difficult, and it's going to make it much more difficult for us to figure out, based on the heterogeneity within counties, which types of policies, or even back to Adi's point, which types of rollout and when will be the most effective. Because it's going, there's going to have to be, I'll call it complicated econometrics or statistics that are going to help figure this out. It's not just going to be a simple, let's track the curves and see which counties are doing well and see what they did. Yeah, I think that yeah, we know, and I mean, it's... it's, it's it's complicated. This is going to keep economists and call, you know, kind of statisticians that do causal inference busy for like another 20 years trying to tease apart the confounding factors that like, you know, would like are present in any kind of comparison of sort of interventions between different states, between different countries, et cetera. It's, it's, it's going to be a very complicated kind of a, a set of analyses that need to be done. And I don't think that, that you know, I don't think we're going to wait on policy and action until those analyses are done in this particular case. I think, you know, we're, you know, I think different governors, we're going to have a little bit of experimentation as different governors or, or, you know, I guess federal on the federal level, some politicians decide whether or not we're going to open up. And I think things will be tried and we'll get some, some feedback on that in terms of results. But I I don't think we're going to wait. We're not going to wait for like a really good causal analysis to tell us what we should do before we actually start doing things. I think the question is, do we look at Europe and do we look at Asia? Mm -hmm. We're undoubtedly, I mean, Asia's already rolled out. So I just spoke to someone who has colleagues in Taiwan. Taiwan is open as as the only effects that you see of of COVID-19 in Taiwan is uh, masks. People are wearing masks everywhere, but restaurants are open and people are back to work. And other Asian countries are starting to open. China is, uh, South Korea. We're going to see some experience about what they're, we're going to get some experience about what they're doing. But as, as Eric points out, but they do things differently and they have yeah. other issues going at the same time. So we don't know. I mean, so simultaneously, almost every governor in every state has ordered masks uh, when you're outside. And, and, when, and that happened all at the same time. If they had done that, if we had got, them to do it in a staggered way, in a randomized way, we would have figured out whether that actually had an impact. And But we have no idea, given all the other things going on at the same time. And so yeah. I, I'm of the conviction that I actually sort of believe that we are going to roll out and we're going to roll out with, with yet with a lot of measures on top of it. So the workplace, we're going to be isolated in our workplaces initially. We're going to be wearing masks in public, on, on public transportation and on the streets we are, uh, restaurants, when they open, will be opened with much smaller capacities and, and, and uh, servers will be wearing masks. You'll be allowed to sit at the table and not be doing, but, but I have to say, part of the trouble is, and this is one thing we always neglect, is the economic damage, particularly to our most vulnerable, given by being closed. And that's cr- created an enormous pressure to open up. And yet the decision makers are risk averse. So we have this risk averse on the top, yet, mm-hmm. We have the population itching to get out there because they aren't surviving. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree, Adi. Uh, we talked about a little bit last week about the, you know, this is a form of regressive, it's not a tax, but a form of uh, regressive uh, penalty, if you'd like. Um, I think literally what you're going to see, and this is, you know, this is how, as you know, in the literature, what it's called, we're going to see test and learn. Now, what I mean by that is we're going to see small scale incremental testing. We're going to then, you know, in some sense, we hope it's done in a way that allows for learning. In other words, as you pointed out, both Shane and Adi, you can't try 16 things at once because when you try 16 things at once and then you see some outcome you're not happy with, then you don't know which of the 16 might have actually. Yeah. Um, no, know. but I mean, again, you're speaking like an economist or a statistician who's designing a good like experiment to figure out what's going on. That's not actually how policies implemented, they will roll out 10 different things at once, you know, different policies, like, you know, the mask rule on the subway and, you know, certain, you know, people in certain industries maybe need to actually get tested for, for COVID before going back. And all these types of things are all going to be done kind of simultaneously, which is going to make it much, you know, after the fact, we are going to try, be trying to tease out these kind of effects of various interventions, but it's in the context of a bunch of other interventions going on, as well as the heterogeneity across, you know, different locations as well. So fellas, one of the things that has played a central role in this whole thing is models. Yeah. People, I've been, you know, you know, wide swatches of people have been paying attention to models to try to understand what's going to happen and pretty sophisticated models. And yet the models have mostly had trouble. What, what do you think the, consequence is going to be of how models have done in the in this pandemic. Do models come out of this thing stronger or weaker in the public's eye? I think the models are going to come out badly. And not that the models themselves are bad, it's just that there's so many uncertainties and we've had to make so many assumptions in order to implement them. And that already the preliminary results look, I mean, they don't look good to the public. And one of the reasons why they don't look good to the public is they've greatly overestimated the numbers of casualties, deaths, late rates. And obviously, we want them to be wrong in this case. So that's the good direction, right? To come out uh, far fewer. It doesn't look like we're having problems with ventilators or ICUs or hospital beds. Even in New York City, they built 10 different locations all around the city. As far as I can tell, uh, and I hope I'm not wrong, they're mostly empty at this point and, and numbers are decreasing. And New York is clearly the epicenter. So it's not that the reality is good, but the models have predicted bad. And going forward, that means that the models become untrustworthy. Well, I, I mean, been a, I, I haven't been a fan there, of the There's a counterargument that comes back to. All right. I haven't been a fan of the models only for one reason, because they haven't been transparent about their assumptions. And they haven't been transparent about the assumptions that are most likely to be invalid. Well, let me ask you a question, Adi. Do we actually know? This is my point. Do we, that's why Cade's question is a great one. Do we actually know that the models haven't been accurate? And this is yeah. what I mean. We don't know that. Like, for example, suppose the forecast that said there's going to be between 100 and 240,000 deaths, which was the number for a while. Suppose that was based on the assumption that social distancing would be X. And that's what they told us. They told us 100 to 240,000. But let's imagine social distancing, where a higher number is more, is 3X. The model may have been, have nailed it. So actually, I have, no, yeah. I can say for me, you may have seen something I haven't. I've not seen a sensitivity testing website that I can go to that allows me to evaluate whether these models have been correct because they were making an assumption about policy that I have no idea to know what, what they would have predicted in the counterfactual. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same, it's, it's a different kind of endogeneity is what Eric was talking about before is that, you know, all these forecasts are made under assumptions um, of, about like how much social isolation, what we actually do. And yeah, I mean, maybe some of those assumptions will look, will look bad in retrospect, but they may look bad in retrospect by design because we looked at, the, you know, we looked at these forecasts and decided to change action based on those dramatic forecasts. And, you know, now the fact, you know, the fact, you know, it, it was almost, we were always hoping that our actions would be such that all these forecasts would be overestimates. Of course. But I, I, that may be a nuance too subtle yeah. for the public in general. Right? <laughs> yeah. But, but the thing is, a lot of that stuff started to be talked about after, right? So it wasn't, maybe it's simply it's reporting, but yeah. it has to do with the, uh, that after the fact, people are saying, oh, well, we've made these interventions and you know how much we see that in sports 
sports data where the story gets written after the event mm-hmm. transpi- yeah. tr- transpires. And, and, and that's something that we t- typically don't, don't like. But let me talk about one, like, one basic fact that is hugely uncertain and it drives these models, which is how many of us are infected. And there seems to be now coming to bear lots of data that suggests that as little, and this is the low end, as 25% of the people, uh, uh, 25% more than the people reported or infected have been, and as high as, as, as hundreds of percent bigger, I mean, maybe, you know, tens of millions over. of people. I'm taking the, we're going to bet on the over under, I'm t- like our show, I'm taking the over. So you think way many more people have been infected? Way, way, way many more. And, and this has a huge, huge impact on lots of things because of immunities. We have no understanding of how many of us are infected. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would agree. I think huge numbers of people are infected. And, so and, I mean, and I, I think both in terms of kind of po- policy as well as actually measurement, this, there's such a strong, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, the, there needs to be, I think, an even higher priority already on like testing, basically. On, on I, I mean, I think that's going to be probably, that's going to be the key to rolling out again, mm-hmm. as well as actually evaluating whether, you know, what, what, what the actual situation on the ground is. Without widespread testing, we, we yeah, I mean, we are just kind of guessing at, at, at even the magnitude of the number of people being infected. One, right last, one last point yeah. on the model before we leave is that, you know, it feels to me the, the fundamental issue people got wrong here is is kind of an equilibrium argument. They kind of gave us partial equilibrium. Right. They didn't allow for responses to it. And if a full equilibrium model, you would say this is we're going to forecast the change in circumstances, but then we also need to forecast people's response to that change in circumstances. And I'm sure that's just, you know, it's hard enough to, to model this epidemiological stuff without that dynamic. But, it, but apparently it's really important to fold that dynamic in. And I think that's a really interesting learning about models, it, you know, sp- specifically in, in, in these epidemiological circumstances, but, but generally that we, you have to account for that response. You got to consider the equilibrium play, not just a straight up, you know, unilateral statistical. I think, process. I think that's right. And let's also take Adi's point. Let's imagine that, and my prediction, or it's a prediction, let's imagine it's true that the number of people infected is 10 times what they're reporting. Well, what would that imply? It would imply that the hospitalization rate is much lower it would imply that the death rate is lower. Um, and therefore, you know, assuming these people have gotten it and have recovered to some degree, or a large fraction of people are asymptomatic or low level of symptomatic, I mean, when the denominator blows up, it's going to cascade through a fairly large number of assumptions. And actually, you know, we like tweeting. I, you know, I, I tweeted on at W Moneyball um, about a, a week and a half ago that just what Shane said that I can't understand why we're not having large scale randomized testing. And it was interesting. Our Dean Jeff Garrett actually responded. And then I responded back to him and I got a lot of likes on mine and he got very few likes on his. His response was, well, we don't have enough tests. We have to use them for the people that are potentially sick. And I said, well, if you're a forward looking person by spending the time, by spending the tests on a randomized sample early on, you're going to reduce the number of people that actually get ill and therefore you will save money in the long run. But that was just my hypothesis. And he and I had a nice back and forth on Twitter about it. Eric, Eric, one thing I'll respond to is, and this is the most common mistake that the that non-statistical people make about sampling. They assume that if a population is large, samples need to be large. And right. that, as we all know, is false. And yeah. when Jeff says you, you were not using tests, we're talking about, we can get our answer with about 100 tests. <laughs> we yeah. do not need that many. And, and just because there's a hot 300 million people in the country, you don't need very many samples if you can actually get a random one. And this, I can tell you from my experience, is the most misunderstood concept in statistics. And, and not to offend our, 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 our dean, but I bet he doesn't understand that as, as well as he should. Because you only need 100 to 200 random samples to get an estimate well, of the things we're talking about. You also need, by the way, you also need, and we did talk about this last time, and I apologize to our listeners on Wharton Moneyball. I didn't look up which one's sensitivity and which one's specificity, <laughs> and I should have this week. We also need a test that doesn't have a false negative rate of 30%. Yeah. We also yeah. need one that doesn't have a large false positive rate because, you know, to me, um, especially when I believe that if we end up doing this mass scale testing that's going to allow to open things up, we just can't have a false negative rate of 30%. I mean, that's just totally unacceptable. So we're going to need, it's not going to be a, um, you know, a nasal test with a swab. It's going to have to be a blood antibody test or something that has a much lower. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about that. One and type two error. 
let's talk about that with implication for sports because we care about opening the economy, mm-hmm. but in this particular show, we also care about sports and we're curious when we'll start seeing them again. It's one thing to play them without fans. That's interesting. We can talk about that, but you got to have the athletes. And so presumably some kind of testing is going to have to happen with the athletes in order to, in, in most sports anyway, in order to be able to play the full game. Are you saying we can't have high po- false negative rates in, in when we're testing the athletes, right? Because that's going to be a disaster. So how do we, how do we, what testing is needed before we could play a full NBA game or a full, a full college football game? Well, I think it also depends. I think it's, it's a little bit convolved with, with the other kind of strategies that would presumably be involved in a rollout besides just testing. You know, things like are they kind of playing in a sort of an isolated sort of environment well, let's, or not? Let's start, with the simple, the, let's start with the simplest one, though. The athletes have to be – they have to be either not have it or have it and have immunity. One of those things has to be true to have yeah. this. Well, so let's yeah. start what you can do. Here, actually, this is what you can do. This is the part I've never understood. Like, um, I, I, like three of the four of us in, on the show, um, I'm, we're above the age of 50. And, you know, we all have, you know, you're supposed to get colonoscopies and they have these false negative, false positive tests, all this stuff. Here's the part I've never understood. These tests are relatively costless. So why don't, why don't while I'm in the drive-thru, why don't they stick four of these things up my nose, do four tests, and you know what? If all four of them come back negative, I'm going to feel pretty good, even though each test is not particularly strong. Stick, do, do multiple of them. And so this is, a, this is a resource allocation problem. Do you spend more money making the tests better, or do you do more testing and wide-scale testing but have to do multiple tests with each individual to get, you know, it's just a problem. You can write down the probability of two negatives, three negatives, four negatives. Well, under, under, under the assumption that each negative is independent, and there could be something about, you know, the test and your physiology or whatever that leads to, like, like that you could, you could be more prone to a false, be a false positive or a false negative. Like it's not uh, like it's these false negatives and false positives don't necessarily pop up completely independently test to test, right? Damn, I hate when you honestly and truthfully um, make my calculation All more right. complicated. But damn, I, you're I mean, right. I mean, your, your I point is still right. your, your point you're is still right. mostly your point is still mostly correct, though. I will. Right, let, let me let me add some, that. some data that some facts. I think I can add. Um, the antibody test is a blood test, and it is not perfectly accurate. So it's it, it is ninety six percent accurate. At least that's what they're reporting it right now, and that actually is terrible because. Um, depending on what the base rate in the population, it might mean that half the cases that show up positive are actually not positives, but they're at, they're fake. But the antibody test is independent. So if you do repeated antibody tests, you should get the true result. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the PCR test, which is done right now to detect an active virus, is a, is, a, is, a, is a genetic material matching test. If they swab you without much or no virus, you will show up negative. Um, and if it's not in your nose, you can just swab yourself five times and you're still not going to test positive, even if you have the virus in other parts of your body or aren't right. shedding it or haven't started shedding it. So the, the virus presence or not is just going to suffer from neg- false negatives, the, no matter how you do it and how often you do it. Positivity, on the other hand, is, is from my understanding, subject to human error, yeah, nearly so, perfect. I- this, yeah. this, this concerns me because now I think, okay, great. Let's use these antibodies and false positives. Well, at least there's security in false positives, right? It's like we worry much more yeah. about the false negatives in terms of the athlete's health. But man, you, you better have, you better have that, that you'd better have like, you know, the, the, the accounting firms auditing the whole trail because now you've got these big incentives to knock out really good players. Oh, my starting quarterback, your starting quarterback has a false positive. Darn. We're going to play anyway. Sorry about we that. We don't have false positives. That's the good news. False positives just won't happen. False negatives are the ones that will happen. That's, that's the that's – No, the, said, that's you, the said, you said 96% reliability on a low On the antibody test. Base and the anti- yeah, on the, the, on the, the antibody. The antibody but that can be repeated. And so um, what Eric had suggested, and he's correct, and okay, it good. applies for the I'm, antibody. Right. You can repeat the antibody test and get independent tests. And okay. then you can know so for that's sure. That's our recommendation. Someone... At, the point, at this point, our recommendation to the leagues would be antibodies and antibody tests whenever we have it and repeat it to, to avoid this false positive problem. Well, that's right. But I want to throw out one thing here, which is really important. And people have been, and this has to do with risk observation or risk tolerance. So many of our athletes are young and healthy. And if you actually look at the data for young and healthy people, 
the probability of getting severely sick and the probability of dying are extremely low. And how that gets integrated into the policy is something to think about. And I don't think we understand or people are, are comfortable with what we think of as acceptable risk in our ordinary life. So we get in cars and do so our whole lives and our probability of dying in a car accident over the course of a year is something on the order of one in 10,000. And that seemed like a lot or a little, I don't know if you wanna, how you feel about that, um, but it is something on the order of one in 10,000, obviously depending on how much time you spend in the car. And I would argue, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong in the specifics, but not wrong in the order of magnitude, that's not too far away from the probability of dying if you're a professional athlete from the COVID virus. Remember, you have to first get it, then you have to die from it. And if you multiply those two numbers, but, they're but not so far out. They're unfortunately, you know, I mean, but these people also have families. And that's it. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like they're, they're yeah, not the is, only ones. Right, but this is where but, tracing and testing can mm-hmm. come in. Yeah. Um, but as, as yes, you're, you're absolutely right. But I want to throw that out here. That, and this is what makes the, the model so difficult to figure out is that, uh, is that we don't respond to risk in an equal way. Measures don't, uh, don't affect us. People who are at more risk will continue to self-isolate and much more and quarantine at a different level as, as, uh, depending on your risk levels. And I can say this, you know, my son has been quarantining with us. He eventually is going to go back to Boston. And once he's there, I'm not going to see him. Why? Because the 20-somethings do not have the same sensibility that older people do. And, and I think many of us are doing that. It's not that he's running out in the streets, but he lives with roommates and there's people coming in and out. And they generally feel that they're there. You know, obviously, depends from person to person. But that cohort, if you will, probably rightly has different attitudes towards the, towards the, the protective measures. Well, and, those, and the length of time that they use them will, will change over time. Additional dynamic that the, that the most troublesome cohort in, in the population at large is exactly the cohort that's, that's most populous in these leagues. That we're, we're looking at them to behave responsibly and the leagues are going to have to give a lot of incentives and a lot of monitoring to keep that safe. We're going to have a chance to talk more about the sports side of this thing. I think this is probably about as much as we're going to do on COVID-19 in general. But let's grab a quick break. This has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, welcome back. This is a special edition, another special edition of Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition. We are coming to you from a distributed set of locations via Zoom today. Eric Bradlow is in Philadelphia. Adi Weiner is in New Jersey. Shane Jensen, also Philadelphia. And this is Cade Massey in Central Texas. We, in the first half of the show, talked about the coronavirus in general. It's a little bit of an epidemiology and modeling, kind of catching up on what everyone's paying attention to. We want to talk a little more sports-centric here in the second half. We know some leagues are talking about how they can get this thing open again, how we can get some games underway. We've got uh, baseball talking, doing some talk. But before we talk baseball, I want to hear, did anybody watch? We've seen some professional athletes competing in something that looks like sport, horse. And so the NBA organized, or somebody around the NBA organized this, had some alums, had some WNBA folks playing. Uh, Eric, I'm guessing you might have taken a little bit of this in. I, ab- I absolutely watched it. Um, it was interesting enough. I mean, the part that made it interesting, as you described, was the different populations, which was there were four current NBA players that played. There were two retired NBA players that played. There was one retired uh, WNBA player and one current WNBA player. And so um, I thought that was really neat um, because, you know, um, I actually think one of the players semi-cheated in the following sense. Um I'll tell you what I mean. They didn't allow dunking because, you know, that, that wouldn't be fair. But um, Zach Levine, who, as everybody knows, is like the two-time slam dunk champion, what he would do on shots, he'd say, okay, so you got to dribble up to the basket. you got to hit the backboard with one hand and then reverse it on the other side. I'm like, oh, you're basically telling me I got to be able to levitate on one side and still have enough air to get on the other side. Why don't you just tell me I need to dunk the ball then? And so yeah. – I actually felt that he was in the rules, but I almost felt like he broke the, the you know, the, the rules. The spirit the, of the rule? The spirit of the rules of horse. And literally three of the letters that I forgot who he played now, I could think. He played Paul Pierce, I think. Three of the letters that Paul Pierce got were just ones that, you know, I don't know, a 50. I don't I'm making up that Paul Pierce is 50. I'm probably not far off. 
45, 50, that a 45 and 50 year old just not going to be able to physically do. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was uh, amazing watching uh, there was a woman, I, I don't remember her last name. I know her first name was Allie, the W, the current WNBA, like three point specialist. Right, um, right. She was fantastic. I mean, every shot she took was great. Her technique was fantastic. She had some very interesting shots. She took one sitting down. She took one behind the basket. I thought the other one that was most interesting was I knew it paid to be ambidextrous, but I didn't know so much in horse. So Mike Conley, who actually went up against um, the woman that's going into the Hall of Fame this year, Tamika Catchings, um, turns out he's technically he's left-handed but he does most of his shooting right-handed. And so he would say, you have to shoot this free throw with your off hand. Well, you can't tell which hand of his is his off hand. So he was doing layups. He was doing things. He shot one from behind the basket with his off hand, where I couldn't even get the ball over the backboard with my off hand, but he doesn't have an off hand. So I thought he, I don't know if that's in the spirit of the rules, but he seemed to not violate, at least in the Bradlow spirit of the rules. And he was shooting with both hands. And we're all like, how can anybody do this? Eric, how did it work for you as entertainment overall? I would say that four half-hour segments in a row was um, there was massive diminishing marginal returns. Um, <laughs> they were they were all. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of them were. I you know, let's say I'm making a number up. A hundred shots were taken. Probably the number of unique shots was fifteen. You know, let's try again from the free throw line, but you have to not hit the rim. Let's try from the three-point line, but it has to hit the backboard. I, I can't let's believe try. they went. They went two hours. That's absurd. That sounds like you know one of the things that that uh, the home run derby used to suffer from uh, what I would call interminability because it just it was the same thing and it just you know how much interest can you get and then they There's revised only so the many format. ways you can yell back 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 yeah, right right and then they revised the format to be uh, basically binary and they kind of created a tournament out of it so um, and that's how it is now and so you would you would you would compete in a binary in a tournament. And they were shorter, and uh, it made it interesting because there's always this progress going forward. Um, so, Adi, why doesn't baseball do kind of a home run hitting contest version of horse? Like, there's no, there's no reason they couldn't do something very similar. Well, I guess the problem. I mean, I didn't actually watch the horse competition. That was all. Everybody was on location. Uh, is that where they were? They, no, they, they had a cameraman. Well, they, this is a Adi. You bring up a fascinating topic. So everyone yeah. was at their home or wherever they are sequestering. Um, yeah. Some people, like Mike Conley has an indoor gym built onto his house. Mm -hmm. um, there were other people like Tamika Catchings who was playing, I think somewhere in Denver where it was like 25 degrees with a 15 mile an hour wind. <laughs> she was shot outside in her backyard. Um, and so, you know, various people had, you know, either indoor situations, outdoor. Yeah, some, yeah. some people were actually shooting because of where it was. Some people were having to shoot off the grass because, you know, their three-point line was in the grass, you know. So it, it was huge heterogeneity in where they were located. So let's talk a little bit about other more serious attempts at bringing sport back. Um, MLB is talking a little bit about what they're going to need to do to get to play again. What's, what's the latest on the MLB front? Well, there's been all kinds of proposals. The one that I think is kind of um, fasc fascinating and probably the most realistic is – for the, this upcoming season, we'd have to basically realign the leagues and you'd essentially have a Florida-based league yep. made up of the teams that use Florida spring training camps and then an Arizona-based league make it made up of the teams that use Arizona-based uh, spring training camps. Um, and essentially then, then you would basically kind of have those two things as opposed to our kind of more traditional like American League, National League uh, alignment. And you and have to be, do that because you would kind of quarantine everybody? Is that yeah, and, I, and, and you would be basically, and it would be sort of, it would be the easiest way because they all the teams have facilities there. It would be the easiest way to basically sort of essentially um, have almost minimal travel, you know, and, and, yep. and you know, because they yep. have people involved with travel. Um, and, and, then, and then there's been all kinds of other interesting proposals to try and get more games in, like go, uh, going to seven innings instead of nine. And do a double header. And, and uh, double headers basically every day. So what's your forecast, what's your forecast on, on in some form, whatever form it might take and whatever locale, when do you think we'll have a, a baseball game that actually counts? An official Major League Baseball game. What's your forecast? I bet you they could try and arrange something like this for Labor Day. Oh, man. You're, you're later than me. I would, I would go sometime two months before that. Really? Wow. So like roll Why out am I, the, I seem to be the optimistic one in all of this. So our, we ended last time when we we're going to see each other. And I said we would do so by July 1. And you guys laughed at me. 
uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm making the same mistake no, twice. So let me let me let me reframe Adi's point because it. Uh, but let me tie it to something Adi you said earlier. I think what's going to happen is that people's um, people's preference or desire or willingness for risk is not a static concept. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is going to happen is that people are going to w- be willing to take more and more risk. I think the pressure on the economy, because you know, as we know. Um, when it's not just about sports, when the economy doesn't run, there's lots of, you know, that you can die from lots of other things too. And so I think there will be pressure to open up the economy sooner than later. And so I agree with you. Um, It does not mean, by the way, that any of us believe that that's the way to minimize the number of deaths due to COVID-19. That's not what we're saying, but I think I agree with you. I would think Labor Day is on the long side. Um, I would say that I was going to guess August 1st, July 15th, August 1st, somewhere in there. But that makes an assumption that, you know, a large, it was interesting. Let's go back to the heterogeneity story. I'm sure you guys heard the story of the California governor said, well, they may be playing baseball, but they ain't going to be playing it in the state of California. Yeah. Yeah. My, my kind of long estimate um, of Labor Day is more based on kind of risk aversion of the decision makers, like kind of on the more political kind of side of things than, you know, sort of like when, when I think, you know, baseball players could safely play. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I am optimistic that by say like, you know, in time for like 4th of July or something like that, or, or like, you know, kind of the usual all-star break, there would be kind of the technology in terms of good testing as well as like kind of a quarantine situation. They could start then, I think, in terms of a safety sense, if, if things kind of, let, let me ask a related testing. But, but I, I just think it'll be like a governor or something like that that will delay it for a couple more months. Let me ask a related question, which brings in to, to play whether it will last. What's, what's the probability that there is an official World Series this year? Oh, I think they'll put something together. I mean, I, 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 think, I think that when they come back, I mean, it's an interesting question, like, you know, if they come back and somebody tests positive, do they yeah, just that, push the whole that. thing down again? I, I, again, think they could basically be past testing on almost a daily basis at that point where I don't think, like, I think positive tests will happen. I think they're only going to come back, I mean, given the costs involved, I think they're only going to come back under the assumption that whatever they're coming back to, that kind of operation can be robust to uh, so an occasional quick. positive test, yeah, right? What have what they I'd done like. to deserve that kind of confidence? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I agree with Dave. I'm going to go 25%. 25% chance that we actually have an official World Series. Well, what do you mean by official? Like, here, here's what I'd like to see. I don't say like to see, but you know me. I always like the doomsday scenario, but not, not in terms of people's health. This is what I'd like to see. Let's have a 40-day baseball season, but with 30 doubleheaders. So we'll have 60 games. Then what will happen is we'll rank order teams from one to 32 and we'll just have a big like tournament style bracket playoff. And so, um, you know, we're not going to get anywhere near. We're not getting 162 like games. one game, one game playoffs, like like March Madness, but for baseball. Well, could be, you could have the <laughs> That'd first. That'd be amazing, have, dude. I, I I consider me on board for this. Yes, I, see, I knew I could get. You oh my, it would be like must see TV, one game, and you go on. Well, <laughs> let me just say, uh, Shane, I've been to every Yankees wild card playoff game that they've ever had, and I'm going to yeah. tell you, it's as exciting as Game Seven of the World Series. Yeah. And you could do that for the first couple of rounds. And now you're down to, you know, you're down to 18. Oh, you could do a more extended thing for like whatever teams. Yeah, you have like 16 play-in games and that only takes a couple of days. And then you do rounds of three, rounds of five, something like that. But whether that would be sanctioned and official, who knows? Right. I mean, I I think at that point, I mean, I'm all for it. I think this would be awesome. Whether they would be comfortable attaching the name World Series to that or not. Look, most of the, we all know, most of those Red Sox titles are illegitimate too. Let me let me jump in and I, I seem to be the most um, sanguine about sports than the rest of you. And of course, I'm hoping I'm right. Um, but making a, a hopeful forecast is usually the dangerous direction, because if you're wrong, everybody remembers. And when you're when you're doomsday and it doesn't turn out that way, you know, and for, people tend to for, forgive you. Um, so I'm still going to stick with it. And the reason why I'm sticking with it is I think that uh, the majority of the workforce is going to return before July because it's necessity. And that's going to allow people to come to terms with the risk that they're taking. I've been in this situation, not with the virus, but 
but uh, um, where I, I, I was in a situation where I thought I would behave one way because it was very, very dangerous by the numbers. But once you got there and you saw that everyone else was behaving in a certain way, you, you sort of adapt. And I think that's going to happen. And, and that despite, yeah, there's going to be pressure by leaders. And it's, Shane, you made the correct assessment. It's our leaders that are by far the most risk averse. The governors, the, 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 the commissioners, the people, they, they're, they're the decision makers. Nobody wants to make a decision that gets someone hurt. Yeah, I mean, they've and got so, the highest liability. You yeah, know, so, but once the, world, once the world gets back to, to work, and, and the reason mm -hmm. why I say this is Asia is doing it. They're going back to work. Now, they're ahead of us on the curve, but they are already going back to work, and they're opening up restaurants, they're opening up businesses, they're opening up factories. And we never closed our factories, even though some of them are, have been closed by necessity. And there is, listen, I, my, my, there's an organization called Israel Aid where, where, where they send, uh, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization, send people to disaster areas all around the world. And my daughter did this in, in Dominique uh, a couple years ago after the hurricanes. They are sending people to Los Angeles. The United States is accepting international aid because we have food lines there because so many people are unemployed and have lost their, their resources. We have, we, it's going to get worse and the need to get our economy right now, it's okay, but I think in six weeks, there's going to be a demand coming from the public to get to let us return to some sort of normalcy. And I think the sports are going to follow. They're not going to leave. They're going to follow. Mm -hmm. Don't most people think we're likely to cycle a little bit? So as we open things up, we'll have another, yeah. we'll have another tick up and then we'll have to shut things down again. And so yeah. it's, it's yeah. some kind of back and forth that we're going to go through. Yeah, Tell me though, just in terms of getting the sports off the ground, how, the do we from, how do we go from a cold start to play in competitive baseball or basketball or football? Like, it, honestly, how much, how much preparation, how much on-ramp time is needed to get an athlete up to not being injured and, and competing at, a, at an international level? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, it's really kind of – I think risk, injury risk is really the kind of key thing. I mean, because they're not going to – I mean, I think, you know, we could probably have a truncated kind of training camp for, for baseball or like, a, you know, a redo kind of spring training up to the point where they're no longer – you know, kind of hopefully warmed up enough where, where we've kind of mitigated injury risk. I mean, you, there's not really the pressure to get it up to the level it would be, you know, in a, in a usual season because it's not going to be a usual season no matter how they do it, right? But Shane, you say, that about, you say that about baseball. You can't, you can't just go out and kind of lackadaisically play major college football, right? I mean, are you, like the NFL All-Star game, yeah, I guess, that's is kind right. of lackadaisical. But the, in a game where you're on a field with 21 other guys, um, I don't know. Right. It, but no, I agree. The, I agree. I agree. I don't know. I mean, football is later in the schedule where there's a good chance that they um, will be able to kind of start relatively close to on time. I don't know how training camps will work, though. Who does the compressed or lack of training camp favor? Does it mean that those who are in the right tail are going to have even bigger advantage or does it compress everything? Is there, are there disparate, this is, okay, I, I see the wheels turning. How do you, how do you think of modeling this? Where does, the, where, does the, where does the impact hit the distribution, the underlying talent distribution? I, and of I course, it, in Malani's thinking, um, I, I think that it favors uh, the elite player. I think um, in some sense, by the way, this thought could be entirely wrong, but here's one possibility. You can play great because you have intrinsic the ability to play great or because you're in really good shape and you can outplay other people. And so if you're a great player, there's two possible ways in which you could play great. If you're not a great player and you're not in shape, there's only there's no possible ways in which you can play great. So if we believe this is a or situation, um, then one group of people has two paths to greatness. The other group of people have less paths to play great. So that's my argument. I would argue that the right tail will benefit. But you know, those, those, those irritating athletes who, who just out condition everybody and, right. and out hustle everybody, they're staying in condition and hustling right now on their own back at their homes. Well, they're if they are, then they'll have, they'll have a, if, if that's true and they're, and they have the capability of doing so in a way that's meaningful for their sport, then um, never mind on my comment. <laughs> it's like, it's so, all right. So what sport would you most choose to have if you could just create something, get it going again, given the constraints, we're not going to have crowds. We're not going to have probably peak performance. 
we've got, you know, we've got some coordination challenges, but if you could dial up any sport, which would you dial up right now? Right now, oh, baseball. It would be baseball. Yeah, I think it would yeah. be baseball. Um, a, because it is, tis the season for it, and I very much do miss it. But I think it's also, you know, I mean, none of them are very COVID friendly, but, you know, you, you can do it without a lot of, yeah, you, you kind of spoke to the sort of like in the context of college football, like how can you kind of cycle up for that kind of, I think football is, is, is a sport much more obviously driven by a lot of physical contact. And also like, I think kind of driven also the, 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 the fans and, 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 and everything like that are, I think have a real influence in that game. I know you guys would go to the major sports. Look, I tell you, give you sports right now that they could play. And I mean, not that they're in a lot of matches without people's hits. You could play tennis right now. Golf. Right? Golf. There, you could play. Absolutely. Matter of fact, yeah. even in states that are shut down, there are still places where golf courses are open because, you know, it's one person to a cart rule, um, one person on the green at a time. Yeah. Um, you can absolutely practice social distancing in tennis or golf. Um, I think those sports have actually a larger probability of coming back. And maybe, maybe to Cade's point, having legitimate grand slams. Yeah, there's no reason they could. Right. There's no reason they couldn't stick to the sort of like the revised uh, grand slam schedule in, in golf, for example. Right. right. Absolutely. So that, those, I, I, those sports I would in, love to see. Yeah. Go ahead. Adi. Kate, I, I would love to see, because I think it's both enjoyable and feasible, um, a uh, NBA um, playoffs, because I think just curtail the season uh, eight and eight go. They go on. And that's just that. And too bad. I know. Um, and the current seedings are the current seedings because I think you could, you could, you could actually do it and it would be great, great, great um, and, uh, fun for everyone and good morale boost for the country. Yeah. You could begin by making sure all the players and their associated staff are, are, are quarantined for two weeks before you start. You can isolate them in hotels and in, in arenas in a single city or two cities and then you bring them together. And um, you, they can spend a, a six weeks away from their families. It won't kill them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think it would be the easiest and most, most efficient um, bang for the buck, if you will. We can pull it off. Well, and you would assume, I assume we would be looking at some kind of truncated play. Like it wouldn't be game best oh, yeah. seven series. Sure. And maybe five like game that. series. Uh, right. Maybe the first rounds being three, then five, then seven. I love this NBA idea, Adi. Um, and because it's you caught it kind of mid-season, in some ways it feels more urgent. By the way, but NHL I, could do that just as yeah, yeah right, right, right. What happens with with home field in a in a world without crowds? It'll what, be interesting to uh, we we get kind of a little bit of an experiment on that, right? That's it's kind of cool, right? To sort of think about like whether there, you know, is there going to be, you know, is is home without crowds? Is home field just kind of a label? Like, is there going yeah, to be you know a what? home field advantage? Uh, here, but the problem is, is that the, there is a home field advantage, but we're not sure its cause. And, Cade, you immediately gravitating to the crowd hypothesis. And the problem is, is that we can't disentangle it be, with the actual home location advantage. Well, we know like, Musk, well, but, 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 but Musk was in wartime. Model, have told us. They're all just, we all just send them to some random city. That's right. So, you so know, we would the, be getting rid of that, too. Or it would, right, it would because, be all equal. Well, no, you just play. You could also have home field games where they play. Let's say you know in some arena, there's just no fans, so I still get to sleep in my right. own bed, and I get that right. advantage. But the yeah. other ones taken away. That would so be great. That, then we. But I don't think they're going to listen to us. Wouldn't it be amazing if they decided we're going to do that because Bradlow wants to do an interesting. We've story. always wanted <laughs> to run the experiment. This is the chance. That's hey, exactly. I'm, I'm even better. Let's go to what you've suggested. Let's put in robots to be referees. And we could take away that bias too. Well, I mean, and, and they are actually like, so, so another part of the MLB proposal, uh, at least that I heard is that they'd be using uh, the umpire, uh, robot umpires for the balls and strikes. Yep. Yeah. What, Just, you know. Eric, you were talking about golf and tennis earlier, and it reminds us of some of the greats who are getting up in age and we're, and we've been following their like major count their whole career, the Federers of the world, world the Tiger Woods of the world. What consequence will this layoff have for that? I mean, Tiger was talking about, you know, he was just rounding into major shape whenever, you know, the, the, the Masters got called off. So how do you think about that? You're one who pays a lot of attention to these things. Yeah, I pay a lot of attention to it. So let's start with, I mean, it all depends on, you know, in their situations right now, it's not just probability of winning, it's the sample size. Like how many more events are they going to even play? And so we know in golf this year, for example, they've canceled the British Open. So 
Tiger probably wasn't going to win that, although he was leading going into the back nine of the, of the last British Open. Um, but if he only plays three majors this year instead of four, I don't think there's a massive impact because knowing Tiger Woods, it just means he can really gear up for three tournaments instead of four. I think in tennis, um, it just depends. If they play all the majors, then, you know, I think Federer, as an example, maybe Serena Williams in this camp too, may benefit from this long period of rest because I've never been that big a believer. Yeah, physical age matters, you know, real age, chronological age matters. But but I Eric, think that, that, that suggests a certain model of the impact of rest on your performance. And I would have thought that it was a, a little bit concave, like they need some rest, but they don't need months and months of no activity. What, what is your model? I, I, that's off the top of my head. I have no idea. But you're suggesting that there may be, you know, continued benefits to continued time off. Not really. I would say that um, they're all at the point of healthiness and rest at this point. I think we all agree. Um, and a peak Federer has a very good chance of beating everybody except maybe two other players. And so that's my point is that, you know, without rest, Federer could lose in the second round to the 83rd ranked player in the world, but not if he's rested and playing well. But Eric, what about, we've, we've talked for years about something that's different about this generation of tennis players is that they, they take the rest they need. They don't play as much as the McEnroe's and those guys did back in the day. And so maybe they're already pretty rested by the time they get to the, to the majors. That, I, I think that's certainly true for the Australian Open. Um, I think it's less true for uh, Wimbledon, especially if you choose to play the French. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly true for the okay. U.S. Open where, you know, you've already played those other two majors within a couple of months of them. And there's also a big set of summer events. Um, so maybe. And also, also folded into rest is things like, you know, the older players are probably more prone to like chronic injuries and stuff like that. And you could imagine a, a more extended time off would be potentially beneficial for that. But, you know, I'm, I'm just speculating here. The, the trainers, the trainers and the strength and conditioning guys and, and women are going to really earn their pay in the next few months or next year as they ramp these guys back up into sports. It's just amazing how off schedule everybody's going to be and the kind of pressure they're going to be to get yeah. on, under the TV lights. It's really, those guys are really going to earn their pay. Listen, fellas, that's been um, another hour of a special episode of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to keep doing this in a distributed virtual way for the foreseeable future until we can gather again in person. But from Central Texas, a big thanks to the listeners out there and a big thanks to my colleagues who are there in Philadelphia, the Northeast and, and New Jersey. Enjoy spending time with you guys. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Matty D listening also, running the sound engineer of sorts. And then Dion Simpkins, of course, having to pretty this thing up after we get it in the can. Many thanks to all of you guys. Many thanks to the listeners. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy sports.